uh, I was thinking uh, back of, uh, I, I, was, I guess I figured it out, it was about 14 years ago. I took Asher, uh, Asher is now my, about to be 16, and took him to the outlet mall one day. The two of us went shopping, and uh, we picked out shoes and a couple other things for him, and I came home, and I was, I was very proud of my purchases, and came home to show Joanna, like, here's what Asher and I picked out. We got him some new shoes. We had gone to Nike, and I picked him out these really cool shoes that were black and silver, and they were really cool. Showed them to my, you know, Asher wasn't quite two, but he was like, yes, you know, liked them. Come home, show Joanna. She opens up the box and she goes, you bought these for Asher? And I said, yeah. And she's, she walked over and kind of sweetly patted me on the arm. She said, what do you think these are? And I was like, they're cool. They're like black and silver and they'll, they'll look cool. And she's like, honey, those are black and hot pink. And I was like, what? What are you talking well, if you don't know this about me, I'm red, green, colorblind. And so they were silver to me. Like they were black and silver and they were really cool. But it turns out they're pink. And so we're sitting there looking at the same shoes and she's going, no, these are pink. And I'm thinking, what are you talking about? We're looking at the same thing, but we're not seeing the same thing, right? It's funny. I had written that thinking about it. And then last night I was at a soccer game with a friend and the teams were white and red. And I was like, yeah, I hope the green team wins. And he's like, the green team he's like they're white and red and i'm like oh okay like the green team like i really just you can't see so sometimes we'll be looking at the same things but what you're seeing and what i'm seeing is totally different and so what that does sometimes is it leads to some miscommunications um and that happens uh when we're even though we're looking at the very same thing and so we see the same thing a lot of times today in our society, in our culture, things that we're talking about, we might even be using the same words and there's a disconnect. I may be saying the same word that you're saying, but we're thinking of totally different things. And part of that's based on worldview. Part of that's based on culture and our beliefs. We actually talked about this a couple weeks ago. Uh, John chapter three, when Jesus says to Nicodemus, unless you're born again, you cannot see the kingdom of God. And I said that term born again is kind of loaded in our culture. In some people, it means very positive things. and some people, it means very negative things, even though we're saying the exact same words. And we even saw that with Jesus and Nicodemus struggling over what Jesus was trying to tell him. And he was missing part of what Jesus was saying. They were coming at it from different places. And so that's happening more and more in our culture today. Part of that's worldview. Part of that's just divisions that we see, the way we define things. And so things become contested. And, and, and what I might think of something as very positive, and I say it to somebody else, and they think of it as very negative. And so just like we talked about born again a couple of weeks ago, I, I say that because today we're really going to talk about this idea of evangelism. And that's a word that's become very contested, and depending on who you talk to, right? Evangelism oftentimes kind of lumped together with the idea of proselytizing. People don't like that a lot in our culture. That's become very loaded because of some of the things today in our culture. We live in an increasingly pluralistic society. We live in a society that holds very much, very firmly to the idea of relativism as being really great. You believe what you believe and that's fine for you. And I'll believe what I believe and that's fine for me. And live and let live and you don't tell me and I won't tell you. But the idea of proselytizing or evangelizing is you're trying to share with someone, persuade them. This is what I believe, particularly about God, about the most important things. And I want to share with you what I believe. But because of our culture, that word can be very, have a lot of negative connotations. Our culture doesn't like it. In fact, uh, if you look around the room, there's probably some people here that have some hangups about it. It's the culture, it's kind of the water we're swimming in. 
it's easy to see why at different times because of how we've embraced these ideas of pluralism and relativism and the way that they come to bear. And so when someone says to you, let me share with you these deepest things that I hold to. And I, what they're really hearing a lot of times is, well, you think you're right and I'm wrong. And it feels really arrogant. How dare you tell me? How would you presume to know better than I know? And so we don't like that a lot in our culture, or it can feel unloving because it feels condescending, right? Today, we've put so much emphasis on our feelings. And if I feel this is right, and and this is right for me, and then you tell me it's not, you're kind of hurting my feelings. But not only are you hurting my feelings, you're hurting who I am, because we've so equated our feelings with what is true. And if somebody kind of pushes against that, suddenly I don't like the way that feels. And so easily it becomes this thing that's very difficult. And so we can be talking about something that I would think is, is very important to share the most important beliefs that you have with others, but someone else may be easily offended by that. And so I start there today because really this text we're going to look at has a lot to do with evangelism. There's a whole lot to do with evangelism. And kind of like we saw when we talked about the idea of being born again, and Jesus saying to Nicodemus, unless you're born again, you won't see the kingdom of God. Here we're seeing Jesus talk about evangelism. Not only talk about it, but do it. And we see him putting a very high value on it. And so as we're walking through this uh, series where we're just saying we're seeking to follow Jesus, we're looking at the life of Jesus in chronological order, we get to this idea of evangelism. And it's a pretty big one. It's a pretty big idea that we see. And so before we even jump in, let's just get a working definition as we think about it. We say evangelism, right? That evangelism, that word evangel comes from the Greek word, and it just means good news, right? And so that's literally what it means. If you put it in verb form, technically it means good newsing. I'm just, I'm sharing with you the good news. And that's what is happening here is Jesus comes and here is God on earth showing us what God is like and how we can be reconciled to him. And Jesus is telling us this, this good news. And that's what we mean by evangelism. And in fact, Jesus is, is all about this. You can see it all the way through this passage, but you see it through the gospels. In fact, he tells us he came to preach the good news. That is the purpose for which he came to show us, to do for us what we can't do for ourselves. And so it's a pretty important idea as we think about it today. So as we look at John chapter four, this is the way I want us to look at it. First, what is it when we think about the good news, the gospel, what it is we're sharing? And we're going to see that the way Jesus says it and what he tells us. So what is it? How do we miss it? How do we get it? And then why is it so important? Right? So what is it? How do we miss it? How do we get it? Why so important? So let's just start with what is it? So look at the story with me. We'll pick up in verse three. It says he left Judea and departed again for Galilee and he had to pass through Samaria. And he came to a town of Samaria called Sychar near the field that Jacob had given to his son, Joseph. Jacob's well was there. So Jesus, wearied as he was from his journey, was sitting beside the well and it was about the sixth hour. It's noon, middle of the day, hot been traveling, going for a long time. Verse seven, a woman from Samaria came to draw water and she said to him, give me a drink. He said to her, give me a drink for his disciples had gone away in the city to buy food. The Samaritan woman said to him, how is it that you, a Jew, ask for a drink from me, a woman of Samaria for Jews had no dealings with Samaritans. And so I want us to pause there for just a second because there's a lot of important background information to what's happening here. We've been kind of doing this each week, but there's a lot for us to kind of get into really understanding 
these relationships Jesus is having and where he's going and who he's talking to, there's a lot of kind of historical and social background. And so one of the things here is he walks through, it tells us in verse three, he had to pass through Samaria. If you went from Judea and then you go north up to Galilee, you had to travel through the area of Samaria. It's actually kind of interesting that it says he had to go through Samaria because what most Jews did at the time is they went around Samaria. They went out of their way to not go through where the Samaritans lived. And the reason was Jews and Samaritans didn't get along. They so didn't like each other. They were so kind of enemies at this time. They so didn't get along that Jews would go way out of their way to go around Samaria. But Jesus takes his disciples and goes, hey, we're going right through here. We're going to go right through this area. Now, you need to know a little bit of why they didn't get along. Samaritans were Jews by history and and ethnicity. But in the exile, some five to six hundred years before this, When the Babylonians came in and spread the Jews out, the Israelites all over, some of them, when they could return to Jerusalem, never returned. And they started to intermarry. They started to syncretize their religion with the religion of the place where they now lived. And the Samaritans kind of came out of this. And so from the Jewish perspective, they looked at Samaritans as half-breeds that had gone out and intermarried and then had syncretized their religious beliefs. And so this had caused all kinds of animosity. And so for some 500 years, they fought and they had many skirmishes and wars and things where they would go against each other. And this was all background of what's happening here. And so they so hated the Samaritans because they had syncretized all these different things. And that was part of even the reason they wouldn't go through Samaria for a Jew to go through to go through Samaria and to come into contact with these people would make you ritually unclean. And so that's why they would go around it. They would have nothing to do with them. And so Jesus takes his disciples and goes right through there. And then he comes and he sits at this well in the middle of the day. And then this woman comes and you see all of that kind of background in her statement to him. How is it that you, a Jew, ask me, a woman of Samaria for a drink, right? Not only did Jews and Samaritans not talk, but culturally at the time, Jesus talking to a woman alone at the well like this was kind of a a taboo. Normally, if you're sitting there at the well and he sees this woman coming up at this time, you would get up and you would walk away and let her do her business at the well and then leave and then come back. And so Jesus is kind of breaking a whole lot of social norms in what he's doing here. And so all of this is kind of background. That's kind of what's behind this loaded statement. But there's one last thing you need to know about this lady. She comes in the middle of the day at noon And pretty much every scholar says the only reason she was there at noon rather than early in the morning before it gets hot, before going and getting your water from the well early in the day that you would need for the day before it gets hot. She's coming at noon because she's a social outcast because nobody wants to have anything to do with her. That's why she's got to come in the middle of the day. But I want you to think about all of that kind of background information as we jump in here. I think this is so wonderful when you stop and think about it, that Jesus comes to that place to meet this woman for a specific purpose at this time. And he knew who was going to be coming. And you're going to see that in his interaction with her. He takes his disciples through Samaria, the place that Jews normally avoided. And he goes right to this place, right in it. And what Jesus is showing us is that the image of God is not isolated to one place or one people group or one gender that all people are made in God's image and that this good news that he's going to share is for everyone. And he goes right into the middle of the heart of Samaria and he waits for this woman and she shows up 
And he begins to kind of blow apart a lot of the things that the society said at the time, because the good news he's going to share is so wonderful that she needs to hear it. And he's there to meet her. And so I just want you to think about that as background to this. But then look at what happens and what he offers her. Verse 10. Jesus answered her, right? So she says, how do you, a Jew, ask me for a drink, a woman of Samaria? Jesus answered her, if you knew the gift of God and who it was that was saying to you, give me a drink, you would have asked him and he would have given you living water. The woman said to him, sir, you have nothing to draw water with and the well is deep. Where do you get this living water? Are you greater than our father, Jacob? He gave us this well and drank from it himself, as did his sons and his livestock. But Jesus said to her, everyone who drinks of this water will be thirsty again. But whoever drinks of the water I will give him will never be thirsty again. The water that I will give him will become in him a spring of water welling up to eternal life. The woman said to him, sir, give me this water so that I will not be thirsty or have to come here to draw water. And so right off the bat, Jesus engages her in this conversation, but immediately he goes to much deeper spiritual realities than she's thinking. It's very similar to what he says to Nicodemus, if you were with us two weeks ago in chapter three. He comes, Nicodemus comes to Jesus, who are you, what's going on? And he says, unless you're born again, you can't see the kingdom of God. And he goes, you mean go back in the womb? And here with this woman, he says, unless you, if you knew who you were talking to, you would ask me and I'd give you living water and you'd never be thirsty again. And she's like, great, how do I do that? I would like to not have to come back here in the middle of the day when it's hot and draw water and do all this. And just like Nicodemus, she's missing the heart of what Jesus is saying, but he is going to something much deeper. He's talking about a spiritual thirst. He's talking about something in her soul and the way that she's created and the way that she is made. Now she's not seeing all that, but I want to summarize kind of what he is offering her. So skip ahead with me. We'll come, we'll come back. Let's skip ahead to verse 23. This is in the middle of their conversation. As they're kind of going back and forth. Verse 23 says, but the hour is coming and is now here when true worshipers will worship the father in spirit and truth for the father is seeking such people to worship him. God is spirit and those who worship him must worship him in spirit and in truth. And the woman said to him, I know the Messiah is coming. He who is called the Christ. And when he comes, he will tell us all things. And Jesus said to her, I who speak to you am he. And I love that Jesus' first public kind of saying that to anyone is a Samaritan woman at the well that's an outcast. He's like, yeah, that's me. And I want you to think about what he's saying to her, the good news that he is telling this woman. I am now here. I am the Messiah. I am the Christ. And I'm offering you the deepest need of your soul. A real relationship with God that will answer all of your deepest needs, everything you're searching for. Now, she doesn't see all of that right away. But that's what Jesus is saying to her. That's why he was waiting for her at that well. Everything that you're trying to fill your life with that's not working can be found in me. And that's what he's offering her. And that's what he offers us. It's what the good news is. That the God of the universe stepped into his own creation and said, I want to reconcile you to me. God is looking for worshipers to worship in spirit and truth, to know him in fullness in the way that you were created to be. And that is what he's offering to this woman. It's the good news. It's what evangelism looks like. Pointing to who God is and what only he can do for us and what we were made for. Now, how do we miss it? How does this woman miss it? She's been missing it her whole life to this point. How is that the case? 
And so part of the problem is we miss it because we miss our deepest need and oftentimes operate in our felt needs, right? Uh, at different times in our life, instead of looking for the true root of the problem in our life, we kind of stay up on the surface and look for solutions that are kind of uh, not going to the fullness of our heart, the fullness of the way that we are created. Oftentimes, we think too small. We think purely in physical terms, which is what this woman's doing when he says, I can give you living water and you'll never thirst again. She's like, great. I would not like to have to come here. Same thing that Nicodemus says when he says to Nicodemus, you have to be born again. He's like, well, how does that work? And they're thinking too small. They're thinking on the surface. But Jesus is always going deeper than that. They're thinking of literal physical. But I would tell you, we do the same thing. We often think of felt needs first, right? The things that are right in your face, the things that you feel, the things that you see that you can put your hands on. And it makes sense. Those are the things that we are most immediate. Oftentimes the things that are kind of closest that we're feeling in the moment. And so we have felt needs, right? Our our physical health, uh, money, respect, position, love, the things that we're looking for in our life. And we feel those things deeply. And so we stay kind of on the surface in those. And I'm not saying they're not important. They are. They're real needs and they're real things that we feel. But oftentimes we continue to look for ultimate satisfaction in those areas and never following to the deepest of our heart and our soul in the way that we are created. And so we often miss the fullness of the good news that Jesus is offering, that God is offering because we stay kind of on the surface level. But what the Bible tells us over and over So the deepest desires of our heart and our soul and our life is that we are made for God and him first. To love him above all else. To be in relationship with him above all else. In fact, if you just look at the Ten Commandments, right? God gives some rules about how his creation works, how we're to live. He does so for our good to show us the reality of the way things are. And how does he start? No other gods before me. No other idols. He starts with those things. These are the most important things that we see that we are created for God and him alone. And he is supposed to be first. That's why Jesus summarizes the law. Love the Lord your God with your heart, soul, mind, and strength. And your neighbor is yourself. And all the commandments kind of fall into that. We are created for him and him first. But I want you to think about the ways we miss that. Even as believers. Even as kind of religious language. We'll say, well, yeah, I know that. I know that's true. God's first. And so we talk to God about all the things we need. And we say, yes, God, and you first and you alone. So God, would you please give me the perfect spouse so that everything would be okay? God, would you please give me the job that will satisfy me and make everything great? God, would you please give me the house that I've always longed for? And we're, we're speaking to God and we're talking to him and we're, we're going to him, but we're asking him to give us other things to satisfy us when he is the only thing that can satisfy us. And so we do that so often. We look for things, ultimate meaning and temporal things. And that's what idolatry is, right? No other gods before me, no idols is number two. Well, idolatry is just taking a good thing that God has given you, spouse, uh, home, job, my, all the things that God gives us that are good things. 
not bad things, good things, and we make them the ultimate thing. I will find meaning and purpose ultimately in these created things, and it will never work. And the Bible tells us that over and over. And Jesus comes upon this woman that's living out of that reality. Look at what happens here in this conversation with her. Right? So he tells her about this living water. She says, that would be great. Tell me where I can get that. But then he says to her, go call your husband and come here. And the woman answered him, I have no husband. And Jesus said to her, you are right in saying I have no husband for you have had five husbands and you now have one that is not your husband. What you have said is true. And then she says, sir, I perceive you are a prophet. He just told her everything about the deepest desires of her heart and what she's dealing with and what she's going through. So she goes, yeah, I think you're a prophet. Makes sense that she would say that. But I want you to think about what he's doing here. Here he's just offered her living water. Something far greater than just physical needs. I'm offering you living water that will well up in you. You'll never be thirsty again. It will lead to eternal life, the spring inside of you. He's not just talking about water. She doesn't see that. So what is he doing here when he says, go call your husband? He's revealing the deepest desires of her heart and how she's been trying to satisfy them. In relationships. And what Jesus is pointing out to her is you've been seeking for it in these things. How's that working out for you? (laughs) Not very well, right? She's had five husbands. She's working on number six. Says that hasn't really worked. And he shows her that he exposes that. And Jesus is saying, I can give you what you're really looking for. You're trying to find contentment in something that will never do it. But the living water that can satisfy your soul is now here. And he's bringing that out to show her that. I can give you this living water. Now, why does he say that? Why does he say it like that? I can be living water. You know, if you listen carefully, Luke read from Jeremiah chapter 2 in our call to worship this morning. And in Jeremiah chapter 2, prophet Jeremiah to Israel, right around the time of the exile, they were a mess. They had turned from God and they embraced all these idols. You know what God says to them in the midst of their idolatry as they're about to be taken away in the captivity, everything is falling apart. And God says, say this to my people through Jeremiah, be appalled, O heavens, at this. Be shocked, be utterly desolate, declares the Lord, for my people have committed two evils. They have forsaken the fountain of living waters and they have hewed out cisterns for themselves, broken cisterns that can hold no water. Do you hear what he's saying? That God is the fountain of living water where you will be quenched, where your deepest need will be met, where the only thing that can satisfy the longings of your soul and you've forsaken the fountain of living waters and now you're trying to drink out of broken cisterns, right? Cistern was a big thing that held water. So think of it more today terms. It's like trying to be, you're parched and you're so thirsty and you're trying to drink water out of a cup that's got a giant hole in the bottom. And every time you try to fill it and you bring it to your mouth, it all just pours out before it gets there. And you're never getting it. And you keep trying and you keep trying. And that's what he's saying. And it's a great analogy here. And I'm sure Jesus is thinking of this as he says to this woman, the the living water is now here. Again, it's one of those kind of cryptic things that Jesus says that's pointing that I'm God and I'm now here. 
You've forsaken God, the fount of living waters. And now I am here and I can give you living waters. And he's showing them. And so the way that we miss it is we miss that God is our deepest need. We seek to use him for other things. We turn to idols rather than the creator himself. And so we begin to miss it. But there's another way we miss it here. And I would say this is on both sides of, of the hearer, of someone hearing the good news of who Jesus is, but also for us as we seek to share it with others. Look at what happens next when he says that to her, right? So he, he reveals everything about who she is, yes? He says, you've had five husbands and now you're working on six. She says, sir, I perceive you're a prophet. And then what does she say? It's almost comical, verse 20. Our fathers worshiped on this mountain, but you say that in Jerusalem is the place where people ought to worship. He just revealed the deepest secret about who she is. And she's like, I've got a theological question that I would like to ask you about where we worship. And it's comical, but it's not in disregard. Oftentimes we miss a relationship with God because we get caught up in arguing over details. And I'm not saying, please hear me. I'm not saying doctrine and truth don't matter. They do. They absolutely do. They reveal to us who God is and how we are to worship him and how we are to approach him. So there's nothing wrong with her question. But oftentimes when we see our deepest need and we get revealed, we want to sidestep and go, let's have a discussion about supralapsarianism. What do you think about your doctrine of uh, end times? And suddenly we want to take it and step over here from how it applies to me and talk about some big theoretical things. And I think that's kind of what this woman does. Whoa, okay, this is getting a little too personal. How about where we should worship? And I tell you, on both sides of that equation, we do that. When it starts to become too personal, we kind of push back and let's have an argument about philosophy, about theoretical things. I don't want that. But even as believers, we do that. Let's do a Bible study and talk about doctrine and theology, which is great and wonderful, and we should. But let's not get too personal about how it applies to me. Or when we're sharing with someone, we get into that, like, I'm going to argue them into faith, and it becomes like this conquer thing. I'm going to show you how smart I am and how I have answers for everything. And that's not what we're called to do either. We're pointing to Jesus and what he's done. And so look at how Jesus handles that when that happens. She goes, are we supposed to worship on that mount? She kind of pushes him away. And he says, woman, believe me, the hour is coming when neither on this mountain nor in Jerusalem will you worship the Father. And then he talks about the hour is coming and is now here that true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and in truth for the Father is seeking people to worship him. She starts to go, well, let's have this kind of theoretical discussion on these other things. Let's go to this. And Jesus kind of graciously pulls her back, says, you're asking the wrong question. The God of the universe wants to have a relationship with you. And he's calling you into this relationship with him. And the time is coming and it's now here. It's not about on that mountain or this mountain. It's having this relationship with the living God of the universe through me because I'm now here. And he invites her into something far deeper. He doesn't let her kind of go off into that. And so he responds and he brings her back to this idea of worshiping in spirit and in truth. And so please don't mishear me. Truth is important. 
It's always going to be worshiping God in spirit and in truth. But it's in this intimate relationship with him that we were created for. And so we can miss it by putting our hope in things other than God, looking to idols. Or we miss it at different times by keeping him at arm's distance and making it all about a head knowledge rather than a relationship. So how do we get it? How do we actually get there? Look at what happens next, verse 27. Just when the disciples came back, they marveled that he was talking with the woman, but no one said, what do you seek or why are you talking with her? So the woman left her water and went away into town and said to the people, come see a man who told me all that I ever did. Can this be the Christ? And they went out of the town and were coming to him. And so Jesus comes and he offers this living water of himself, this deepest need drawing us into this relationship with God and what he's done. And he's revealing the truth of who he is and her need and our need as well. We're just like the woman at the well in all sorts of different ways. But in order to really get it, we have to come into the light and see our need. If you read carefully in John's gospel, you'll notice that he talks a lot about the light. There's a lot of kind of symbolism there with light and darkness. You see it right from the very beginning. In him was the life. And the life was the light of men as he talks about Jesus right there in John chapter 1. He is the light that is now shining into the darkness and he reveals how things are. But then if you look closely at the beginning of John chapter 3, Nicodemus comes to Jesus, but he comes at night. He comes in the dark, under the cover of darkness because he doesn't really want anyone to see him with Jesus yet. He's still trying to figure out who he is. He comes under the cover of darkness. He's asking his questions. He goes away. He's not sure. He's still kind of in the darkness. And then you get to John chapter four and Jesus meets this woman at noon in the light of the day. And he tells her everything that she ever did. He reveals to her the ways in which she's seeking ultimate meaning and purpose in her life and how they're failing. And what happens here is she gets exposed and he sees her and all of her stuff and his answer when he does, is come to me and thirst no more. And you think about what happens here. She runs off after getting revealed all her deepest, darkest secrets, and she runs into town and she says, he told me everything about me. Is this the Christ? She's not afraid. She's not running off of, oh no, what is he going to do with this information? It's like, come meet him. See, what happens with this woman is that he sees all of her needs, all that she's longing for, and it's exactly what all of us are longing for, to be known and to be loved and to be accepted and to be called out of the darkness to walk in the life. And that's exactly what he does with this woman. She's looking for all that she wants in her life in the arms of a man. And Jesus says, no, come to me. You put your faith in me. You walk with me, you abide in me, and I will be a fountain of living water that never runs dry. And he calls her into this relationship. And instead of drinking over and over from a cup with the hole in the bottom, he says, come to this and it will satisfy you. And she goes running off to go, you've got to meet this guy. 
How awesome is that picture? I love John chapter 4. That he calls her into this. And the truth is we're all just like the woman at the well. We do the same thing over and over. Right? Do we not? We seek to drink out of the cup with the hole in the bottom over and over again. God, would you just give me a new job and then everything will be good? Still thirsty. God, would you just fix this issue with my health and then everything would be perfect? Which, by the way, praying to God for a new job and praying for your health are good things that you should do. I'm not making light of that. But if we put that as our ultimate hope, it will never satisfy God, would you give me the right man or woman in my life and then everything would be good? God, would you just make sure that my kids are okay and then everything would be good? And what God says to us is quit trying to drink out of that cup and come to me. And it's there and only there that we see that all of our needs will be found in him and nothing else. That he is the fount of living water. He is the one that restores us to our relationship that we are created for. He and he alone is the one that can do that. And so I want you to think about how important this is. It's of the utmost importance. This is the very desire of your soul and what you were created for. More than anything else. And so I want you to look at what he says here. So this really is a whole lot about evangelism. Jesus is doing it. He's sharing the good news. He's going to this woman. He's meeting her. He's showing her a need. He's pointing her to himself. But then look at what he says about it in verse 31. Meanwhile, the disciples were urging him saying, Rabbi, eat. But he said to them, I have food to eat that you know not about. And so the disciples said to one another, has anyone brought him something to eat? And Jesus said to them, my food is to do the will of him who sent me and to accomplish his work. Again, they're doing the same thing that Nicodemus is doing. Same thing that the woman at the well is doing. Thinking in temporal terms. And he's like, I've got something far better. Do you not say there are yet four months and then comes the harvest? Look, I tell you, lift up your eyes and see the fields are white for harvest. Already the one who reaps is receiving his wages and gathering fruit for eternal life so that the sower and reaper may rejoice together. For here the saying holds true. One sows and another reaps. And I sent you... To reap for that which did not labor. Others have labored and you have entered into their labor. And then it says, many Samaritans from the town believed in him because of the woman's testimony. He told me all that I ever did. And so when the Samaritans came to him and they asked him to stay with them, he stayed with them two days. And many more believed because of his word. And they said to the woman, it is no longer because of what you said that we believe. For we have heard for ourselves and we know that he is indeed the savior of the world. And so I want you just to end here, I want us to end here today of why this is so important. The disciples come back and they say, aren't you hungry? They went off to get food and they come back and Jesus is not eating anything. Aren't you hungry? And he's like, no, I'm good. I have food that you know nothing about. And they're all like, who gave him food? That's actually what they say. Who did he slip food earlier when we weren't looking? And he goes, no, it's due to the will of the father who sent me. And Jesus tells us that giving our lives away for the glory of the gospel is far better than anything else. There's nothing else that is going to bring joy and satisfaction in the way of doing the will of the Father and pointing to him. And that's what he says. 
He goes, no, 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 you're missing it. And then he turns to them and he says, look at the fields. They're ripe for harvest. I had a professor once, and, and this is pure speculation, but it always stuck with me. He said, I always imagine Jesus sitting there looking into this town of Samaritans. And at the time, they would have often worn like head coverings, kind of like turbans in this climate. He said, oftentimes they were white. And he said, I imagine Jesus sitting there and looking into the town of all these people coming out to see him and going, look, the fields are white for harvest. That here they are. Their deepest need, and you know the answer to it, and here they come. And he says, the one who reaps and the one who sows, we do it together. That people go before us and they share the truth and they plant seeds and you come along and you never know if it's the time for someone to step into the kingdom or not. But he says, we continue to do so. And when we do, we're going to rejoice together. Because it is the greatest truth in the world. That you were created for the God of the universe to be reconciled to him. And we get to be part of it. And Jesus is saying that to his disciples. You get to be part of this. And we're going to rejoice together when we see at the end and all that God was doing and calling people to himself. And so as we end, two things about why it's so important. Think about the way John's writing this story, the way God has inspired his word. What was the last thing that he said in chapter three, right before he tells this story, all about evangelism, all about calling people to himself. Chapter three, verse 36, whoever believes in the son has eternal life. Whoever does not obey the son shall not see life, but the wrath of God remains on him. They're surrounded by people who are under the wrath of God because they don't know the only way to salvation. And everywhere you go, people who are seeking to drink from that cup that will never fill them up and you're surrounded by them. And he calls us to be part of what he's doing say, well, why is it so important? It is the deepest need of every single person you will ever meet. And God is allowing us to be part of his plans to call them to himself. And as, as we get to be part, and as we speak the truth, and as we remind people, and people come to faith, that is where the greatest joy will be found as we see and savor Jesus for his glory and what he's done for us. It can't be any more important. So would you pray with me? God, we thank you for the glorious, glorious good news of what you've done for us. That you have saved us by no doing of our own. That you have come to us to meet our deepest need. The things that we are searching for. The things that we are longing for that can only be found in you. Would you have a... Give us eyes to see that afresh today. I pray that you give us eyes to see the people around us as made in your image. Your estranged sons and daughters that aren't talking to you at this moment. That they're separated because of their sin. And that we would see that so clearly and want to share with those in front of us. Reminding them of how much you love them. How you're calling them to yourself. Give us the heart for those around us. 
reminding us always that it's you that is doing this work that we get to be part of it. We pray that we would see each person the way that you see them. Give us the eyes to see. We pray all these things in Jesus' precious name. Amen.